Okay. Well, good morning. This is the first uh, session in uh, what I hope will be a profitable uh, series on church history. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this, uh, for this beautiful morning. Uh, thank you for these people who have come, uh, taken a little extra time out of their busy week to come and hear uh, about you and about what you have done through the annals of history. Uh, I pray that this would be an encouraging time and uh, an edifying time for them. Amen. All right, so as I said, we're starting a series on church history. And you might ask, why, why study church history? I mean, who, who remembers uh, all how exciting uh, junior high Eric remembers how exciting junior high history class was with all those names and dates that you needed to memorize for the test. Well, this isn't so much just a survey of names and dates, but also uh, developments of, of ideas and movements and progressions of ideas. And what, we're, what, what my aim is with this course, um, uh, I am aiming to go up until about uh, the 7th, sixth or seventh century i'm not i'm not committing right now to go all the way up to the present time because that is pro- that would probably be like a two-year uh study at least um so i'm going to go up uh to the seventh sixth or seventh century and my i have three goals i want this series to help you have a better grasp on how we got to where we are today um, very, very early on in, in, in almost every chapter, there are things that are going to pop up in the material that are going to make sense, and they're going to correlate in some regards to uh, something that you have experienced in church or, or even in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so I want us to, have a, to develop a better grasp on how we got here, how we got to where we are today. I also want us to learn from the past errors and triumphs of our predecessors. You know, not, not every Christian and not every church and not every bishop uh, did things excellently. So there are lessons that we can learn from, from their errors and mistakes as well as their successes and triumphs. And then I also want us to see God's faithfulness through history. He promised in the Gospels he will b- build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And uh, the guys that I have exposed this material to, material to um, already have, uh, on a several occasions, just shown um, e- amazement and wonder at how uh, this little fledgling Jesus movement didn't just fall by the wayside or crumble into obscurity. God has been faithful to keep his church, and you, you see that through history. So learn how we got here. Learn from past errors and triumphs and to see God's faithfulness. That's what I want this series to do. So I guess we need to go back to the beginning, the beginning of it all, the beginning of church history. And Charles Schultz uh, illustrates, I think, how a lot of people have felt, uh, believed about church history with this comic strip that he wrote, I think, in the 70s. Do you get it? Most people learned of the, under the assumption that the beginning of church history began with the founding of their church or the birth of their pastor. And they, they can't trace their spiritual family tree any further back than perhaps one generation. 
again, our first aim is to see how we got here. How did we get from Acts 2,000 years ago to Evangelical North America 2018? So what we're going to do, the, 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 first, um, this, the first half of this study is basically going to focus on the first three centuries. And, and today we're going to be looking really at the world of the Roman Empire and, uh, and the world of the Jews at the, at the time that the New Testament began. Um, this chart, it, it's about 100 years later, but it's, it's still a, a good approximate representation of how big the Roman Empire was at the time of Christ. And it's significant just to take a, a few minutes to look at the Roman Empire because while the Jews were not, um, they weren't ignorant of, of being occupied or, or of uh, oppression by other powers. You know, they, they had been oppressed and, and enslaved before, but the, the, there's a uniqueness to the Roman Empire because they are not like any of the other nations or countries that had enslaved the Jews. I mean, you, you look at the, you look at the, um, the, in the time of the judges and the, 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 that occupation lasted maybe five to 10 or 20 years on each occasion. Uh, even the Babylonian exile was only 70 years. Uh, by the time of the New Testament, uh, the Jews have been occupied by Rome for about a hundred and almost 200 years. And Rome itself, as we'll see, has been a long-standing, far-reaching nation. It, Rome just surpasses any other nation that has come before her uh, by abounding measure. So there are, th- there are three things that really um, pop out that, that help show how Rome was so great. Like, why was it so special? Why was it unique? And th- there are these three areas of cohesion that, that helped make it what it was. The first is a common political loyalty. And that was a, uh, that every Roman citizen and every Roman slave, whether he wanted to or not, had a common submission, common submission to the man who ruled the, the whole thing. And who was that? Who ruled the empire? What? That, well, the Nero, yeah, the, the emperor. And and one one other thing I wanted to um, uh, make very clear is, I welcome questions. I welcome interaction. Um, I'm hoping to get through this whole chapter today. But there, as Eric and Jason will testify. Uh, some of the, the chapters in this book that I'm basing my study off of, um, th- there's no way. There's no way I'm going to get through a whole chapter in, in one w- week. So um, after this week, possibly this week, um, it will be a common thing for me to say we're going to stop here and pick up here next week. So that being said, uh, don't feel that if you have questions, if you have an objection, or you want if, if you have something you want to say, don't. Don't be afraid to raise your hand um, uh, in fear that, you know, Aaron's going to go an hour over if I say anything. So Rome, uh, the Roman Empire, all the citizens, uh, citizens and slaves were uh, loyal to the one man who ruled the empire. And um, Rome itself uh, has already been an old and established city. It was established uh, uh, in the time of Isaiah and Hosea in the Old Testament, about 
750 years, uh, 753 BC, I believe. Um, Rome had been ruled by kings for about two centuries, and then for about three or four centuries by a republic. And then um, the, there were several civil wars that uh, caused the, the empire to uh, break into fragments, and w- there was, uh, it was necessary for one man to rise up and unite this scattered, fragmented um, um, federation of, of tribes, and that was the Caesar. And uh, the, the strongest candidate in, uh, in the first century B.C. Was, uh, was a man named Julius Caesar. He was the most respected and the most powerful among the, the candidates for the Caesar, but he was assassinated by, by Brutus. Some of you may know that, that story. Uh, his nephew, Octavius, became Caesar in 31 B.C., and this is the Octavius that you read about in Luke chapter 2. This is the, the Caesar who, who orders a decree uh, that causes Joseph and Mary to have to make the trek to Bethlehem. Uh, a Caesar Octavius Augustus, uh, that was the title given to him four years after he became the emperor. This guy, because he did such a fantastic job being an emperor, uh, that after the empire looked like it was, a, it was on the verge of collapsing, because he was such a great ruler that uh, the empire looks at the office of emperor as something that needs to be maintained. The, the, there needs to be an emperor because uh, he is the one who's going to uh, establish and maintain peace and justice and order. And uh, uh, Caesar Augustus did these things. He was considered by many to be the greatest of all the Roman emperors. He reigned for 45 years, which was pretty long. Some emperors and some kings, if you know history, don't stay very long on the throne. Um, so the, uh, because he was so good uh, and he, he'd left such a good impression of the, of the office and role of emperor, uh, he made it, at least for a time, easy uh, and necessary for the people to look to the emperor as someone they needed. Or it, he was an authority they needed. They need to submit to him. And so that, that common loyalty was something that united uh, the empire. The second was a common economy. You know, if, if, if you're trying to engage in trade, and, and uh, economy and, as you'll see, culture with language, if you're trying to interact with, with other peoples, it is so much easier when you speak the same language and when you're trading and bartering in the same coin. You know, it, who of you have gone overseas, gone uh, international, and, you know, uh, everyone takes dollars, but occasionally you do go places where you need to uh, convert your do- U.S. dollars into the, the local currency. It's so much easier to trade and to sell and to... to uh, uh, maintain the economy when everyone is using the same bit, the same coins. So uh, uh, all the provinces of Rome used the same money. Uh, that helped build and improve trade networks, uh, and that helped. Uh, that necessitated the building of the Roman roads. Some of you may know uh, the role that those played in the spreading of the gospel, but. Uh, not only the economy, but the culture itself, language, education, art, literature, philosophy, and science throughout the Roman Empire was largely the same. And that was because the Romans loved Greek culture. They loved it. 
even the irony is is they conquer uh, the Romans conquered the Greeks, but the Greek culture conquered the Romans. So even after the Greeks themselves have been assimilated or they're gone, the Romans basically are the new Greeks. And uh, uh, as as the people, uh, as soldiers and as uh, people are redistributed throughout the empire, this Greek influence uh, just spreads and permeates throughout every Roman culture. And they were, the, the culture was also very religious. And that leads to our next point. The, what were the four main religious um, families or, or uh, four main religions of the empire? We have traditional Roman paganism. We have emperor worship, Eastern mystery cults. Forgive the spelling error. Uh, There won't be a test on that. And philosophy itself. Now, with traditional pagan worship, the interesting thing about this is this was the official religion of the state. There there was no such thing as, as separation of church and state. In fact, uh, Roman paganism, the, the, the Roman government and the emperor himself saw itself as the means by which the gods had, uh, they saw themselves as being appointed by the gods and sustained by the gods to, to maintain uh, the worship of the gods. And so the emperor himself, the emperor's religious title was called the Pontifex Maximum, Maximus. Uh, which is, basically means the high priest. The emperor was the high priest of the Roman gods. And what the Romans did was they, like I said they, earlier, they, ado- they basically adopted the Greeks. So they took the Greek gods and uh, they took the Greek god Zeus and they gave him the name Jupiter. They took Ares and called him Mercury. Um, and, and all of the, Ro- the Greek gods... All the Roman gods were just renamed Greek gods. And each god had a, had a dominion or a sphere or a, an area where they were the top dog. And so and th- this is how uh, paganism had just infiltrated and, and permeated throughout the culture. You, business affairs would be uh, started off by some kind of religious ceremony. Uh, if you wanted to bless your business, you would offer up a sacrifice to the god of either agriculture or the god of business or the god of commerce or, or something like that. If you, uh, you know, if you were on the verge of getting, if you were, if you were looking for a for a wife, you would offer up a, a sacrifice to uh, to Venus, the god of love, or or something like that. Um, each god, m- similar to the way that the saints are prayed to in the Roman Catholic faith, uh, each of the gods were appealed to in each of these different areas. And worship included animal sacrifices, um, both at a, at a temple and private. Uh, there was individual and group prayer, and then there were different kinds of divination. And what that means is basically uh, through through mysterious, mystical ways, trying to ascertain what the will of the gods are. So trances, um, uh, dreams, visions, prophecies, uh, all of these things are different forms of divination, trying to find out what, what are the gods trying to say to, to, say to us. And uh, Roman paganism was polytheistic. There was... Uh, there wasn't any kind of requirement that you had to worship one god over the other. 
You could worship whoever you want. And uh, kind of the irony is, is the, as the Christians come onto the scene, they would be called atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. They would say there's only one God, so they were called atheists, which is ironic. Okay, emperor worshipped himself. Um, not very clear uh, at, the, at the time of the New Testament, but definitely um, as you get closer to the 200s, 250s, the emperor gradually was seen as deity himself. Now, at the onset, he was seen largely due in part to uh, Caesar Augustus's uh, incredible successes um, as, as the Caesar uh, he was seen very early on as being um, placed by the gods. He has been giving the blessing of the gods. He is sustained and empowered by the gods. And, and over time, uh, perhaps through his, uh, through his own arrogant pride, he began to see himself as a god. And that's kind of weird to think when you consider that some of these men would only last in office two years and then be assassinated or killed in battle and Apparently, gods can die. Uh, a third uh, form of ma- uh, uh, religion were the Eastern mystery cults. Now, Roman paganism went as far back as, as Rome was founded in 750 B.C. The, the Eastern mystery cults were a more recent development, and they came from the east. Um, they're uh, from Persia, from Egypt, and, and other parts of Asia. Uh, if you've ever heard of Isis, Isis is one of these, uh, or, or Mithra uh, is one of these. Um, these were based on uh, mystery. They were called mystery religions or mystery cults because uh, as opposed to Christi- the Christian faith or what was supposed to be in Judaism, uh, an, evangel- an evangelization, a proselytization of people, making disciples, going out, proclaiming the good news, Mystery cults were more um, kind of what we would associate as cultic in the sense that um, it would be more secretive. Um, You would only strategically tell people uh, and invite people in. And uh, compared to Roman paganism, where the gods were seen as very fickle, very distant, um, uh, indifferent to the affairs of men almost, uh, the, the the gods of the of the mystery cults were m- much more personal, much more intimate and relational, and there was a stronger relationship between the the worshiper and the eastern mystery uh, deity. Uh, this cult also these cults also emphasized um, that the that the worshiper himself needed to make a decision. So that there there there's more emphasis put on the will and the heart of the worshiper in these cults than in traditional rogan paganism. And worship included, um, you know, t- tapping and appealing to the senses and to the emotions and feelings. Worship would include religious singing, religious dancing, uh, ceremonial processions, religious feasting, and group acts of immorality. All of the things that, that excite, uh, excite the emotions and excite the passions. So much more, much more uh, passionate than Roman paganism. And then the third, which kind of weird to think that this is a religion, but it, it, it was, uh, as, as a religion, philosophy promised fulfillment to, the, to, to its advocates. 
philosophy, if it was a person, it would say, if you follow me, you will be satisfied, you will be content, you will be made full. And um, contrasted to the the other religions, the philosophy was mainly kept to the educated classes. Because if if you're working in the fields all day, you don't don't have time to to go and stand in an amphitheater and discuss uh, ideas and philosophy. All right, so the, the three main philosophical uh, flavors are uh, Platonism, Stoicism, and Epicureanism. And the one that stands out, the one you need to know is Platonism because it is going to uh, revive itself and, and, and gurge up its, its head in the second and third century in a movement called Neoplatonism or ne- New Platonism. And Platonism... Uh, essentially believed, it it did believe in God, it believed that God was a supreme being, it believes in a higher plane, and it it overemphasizes that higher uh, spiritual mysterious plane. And they they said this, they, they said reality exists only in the divine ideas of God. Now what does that mean? Exactly. It it, I, uh, reality exists only in the divine ideas of God, and the idea—the idea is that—is that, is that the, the material world, the, the world of matter, the world of things, are constantly changing, and so they can't be real. Things fade, things fall away, things die, so things must not have a true reality or a true essence to them. Uh, there is this. There's this ideal in the mind of God, and wherever that is, whatever it is, that is the true thing. And what what we see is is a shadow of the real thing. Um, and so the goal of this was to get was for men's minds to try to get up to where God's minds are, where where th- where things are constant. Uh, that that emphasis, that overemphasis on the spiritual, uh, at the expense or at the cost of the physical, keep that keep that uh, that relationship or that dichotomy in mind, because that will uh, come up again and influence the church in the second, in the third and fourth centuries. All right, Daniel, you ready? I don't really need to go into this because it's not that important. So. Put it on the calendar, Aaron. Um, the, the Stoics were, were basically materialists, and that's all. You, they, they they are mentioned in Acts seventeen eighteen, but you, we don't really need to get into who they were or what they believed because they they, they died off. Same thing as the Epicureans. Um, the, these were uh, anti-religious. These were these were men who said that the gods really don't have interest in men, and by by absorbing yourself in what the gods want and by, by being afraid of the gods who really aren't going to do anything to you anyway, you're just, you're just making problems for yourself. Just, just let it go. So the, the Stoics and the Epicureans, um, important in its time, but not really important for church history. Um, now, so that's, that's the Roman world. Now, transitioning over into, uh, into the Jewish world, um, let me just say uh, say some things about uh, the, the the politics and, and the government of Jewish life. 
Um, it, for those of you who were here last year when we did the um, when we began the survey, you remember uh, I gave you basically a history of those 400 years, and you remember how many times uh, Israel was basically caught in the middle between the the, the fragments of Alexander the Great's empire, and um, every 50 years or so, they're basically trading hands between the the successors to Alexander's generals. Um, in 161, uh, Judea allied with this new power coming from the West called Rome against uh, one of the fa- uh, against the east and northern um, remnant of Alexander's armies, uh, the Seleucids. So they, um, Rome is looking to expand east, and uh, Rome comes upon the scene, and there are these two warring factions. And so they ally themselves with the closer one because they know they don't like the other one, and that, that's the Jews. So the Jews are granted this status called friends of Rome. And this means that they were given a lot of privileges that, that other peoples weren't given. Um, they were uh, granted, they weren't a granted, uh, they may have been granted certain exemption from taxes, but they weren't forced to serve in the military. They weren't forced to, off, uh, to um, conduct emperor worship um, and a, a few other advantages. But this was something that the Jews enjoyed very much. Um, so that was in 161, and in beginning in 57, for about 20 years, there's a series of revolts that eventually uh, causes the Romans to come in and, and take the Jewish king uh, off the throne, and they put on someone who will be a little less loyal to the Jews and a little more inclined to you know listen to what Rome has to say. So they put an Idumean man named Herod Antipater on the throne. And he's the king of the Jews. Now that should that should uh, set up the stage for uh, for a conflict of interest when some, when another man is born king of the Jews in the beginning of the Gospels. So that the man that the Jew that Rome places, uh, I think they place him in 37 BC. That's Herod the Great, Herod Antipater. So that that puts a non-Jewish king on the throne of Israel. And then in 6 AD, there there's some more revolts, and there is a, a placement, there's a position created called the governor. And this man, this man would, uh, uh, he answered directly to the emperor. He had authority over the military, over public order, uh, authority over the whole taxation administration, over the justice administration. This is the guy who can authorize someone to be put to death. So who do, you, who, do you, who do you think this is in the in the Gospels? Who's who? yep Pontius Pilate? Remember the the Jews after the after the Jews already uh, concluded they're going to execute him, they have to get approval from Rome first. So they go to Pilate. That's this guy, the governor. Uh, and then there's the Sanhedrin. This is uh, a group of seventy members of the highest ruling classes in Judaism. This includes the high priest. This includes uh, other priests among the Sadducees. Uh, this includes the Pharisees as well as lawyers and scribes and other members of the Jewish aristocracy. Now, this, this group, the, the Sanhedrin, these 70 guys uh, have the highest power, uh, highest political power within um, among the Jews. Remember, 
Herod is not a Jew. He's an Idumean. So the, the Sanhedrin are the, have uh, the highest power among the Jews within Israel. Um, they, they had the power to try all kinds of legal cases. Uh, the only thing they could not do was what? What, what, what did they have to go to, to Pilate for? Yeah, for, yeah they, they couldn't inflict the death penalty. And they also had their own, inter- they had their own Gestapo, basically. They had their own police force. And uh, this may have been the mob that shows up uh, in Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. Uh, and it certainly uh, included the group of people that Saul was with when he's going around and, and uh, arresting Christians and throwing them into prison. So they had their own police force. So Judaism itself came into four main, four main groups, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. The Sadducees uh, in, included the priests and the aristocracy. So these, these are the, the, the nobles. These are the ruling families. These are the rich and influential families. Uh, and they had many members in the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sadducees, uh, their power was built and, and focused around the temple in Jerusalem. Have any of you wondered why we haven't heard in, 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 uh, in Carl's preaching, do you, has anyone wondered why we haven't heard too much about the Sadducees? Where has Jesus been thus far in Mark? What? What was northern Israel called? Galilee. So Jesus has been in Galilee for, for, you know, for most of Mark. The Sadducees are, their power base is focused around the temple in Jerusalem. They're, they're, they're also, uh, many of them are also the landowners, the rich landowners of Jerusalem. Uh, they believed that the Pentateuch was the only authoritative body of literature. So they, they held to the first five books of Moses, but they really could have cared less what any of the prophets had to say. Uh, they had a very um, materialistic uh, worldview. They, um, if you remember in um, Acts 23.8, when Paul is uh, brought before the Sanhedrin, he strategically brings up, he, he appeals to the resurrection, knowing that there's a division among the Sanhedrin as to whether there's uh, a, you know, an afterlife, spiritual things, resurrection, angels. Uh, and so he appeals to that, and that causes a division he's able to get out of there. But um, in each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20, uh, the gospel writers include the detail uh, when when they introduce the Sadducees that uh, they do not believe in the resurrection or they do not believe in angels and spirits. So they're they're materialistic. Then you have the Pharisees, by far the largest sect by far having the greatest influence among the common people. Now, where the Sadducees were, um, you know, the Sadducees were the priests. Uh, they are focused around the temple. Remember, there, there weren't t- temples uh, throughout the land. There was only one temple in Jerusalem. And the priests are all down there. The Pharisees, the rabbis, the scribes, 
could have been in Jerusalem, but they also went out and traveled among the people. So they, among the people, uh, the Pharisees, um, I, I wouldn't say the people like any of them, but they at least have a, um, they're on somewhat more neutral or better terms with the um, with the Pharisees than they are with the Sadducees. The Pharisees had a much greater emphasis on obedience and personal holiness, and this is because the reason that the Jews were sent into exile in the Old Testament was because of a failure to obey the law. Namely, they went after other gods. But the Pharisees learned the lesson, we were punished because we disobeyed the word, because we disobeyed the law. So we are going to study the law, and we are going to make sure that we keep every jot and tittle of the law. And to make sure we do that, we're even going to make all of these additional explanations and laws based on the law, and we're going to follow all of those as well. And the irony is, is they ended up abrogating the law because of all the additional things that they came up with. But they believed that the Roman occupation was, was, was a, an expression of divine discipline. In the same way that the that the um, in in the times of the judges or with the exile that uh, they were sent into captivity as as a disciplinary measure, they saw the Romans as the same thing. It was just the more recent one, and they believed that if they could obey enough, if they could if they could uh, bring about a, a, a point of national repentance and national obedience to the Torah, then the Romans. Uh, would eventually be expelled. Uh, unlike the Sanhedrin, uh, unlike the Sadducees, they accepted all of the Old Testament law, uh, prophets, and writings, and uh, they also comprised the Sanhedrin. the The third and the fourth uh, groups um, are kind of similar in that they're they're both extremists, but their expression or their manner of extremism is different. The zealots were uh, national extremists. They were fanatics who did not like Roman occupation. They didn't like that Jews were paying taxes to the Romans. They didn't like that the, that, uh, um, that the, that, the uh, ro- that there were many Gentiles living in the land and anything they can do to hurry up and expedite the expulsion of the Romans, um, anything was permissible. No, no, no option is off limits. And this would include assassination, this would include bribery, this, this would include anything. And so they, uh, the zealots uh, formed terrorist groups, and it's important to know them because they are largely, not, not only was one of, uh, was a zealot called to be a disciple and an apostle, Simon, uh, but the zealots are largely uh, influential in the Jewish revolt of the late 60s, which would lead to AD 70. And what happens in AD 70? Don't be afraid. Yep. Well, and most of and a lot of Jerusalem. So that is largely due to the the uh, the influence of the zealots uh, after after. Um, the time of after the, the the days of Jesus and the gospel goes out, the the zealot movement grows. 
Um, so they are fanatical, ac- uh, um, active extremists or extreme activists. The Essenes are the extreme pacifists. They are they're the opposite of the Zealots in that rather than rather than instigate uh, you know change within and you know push out the man, they are more like this. this we're fed up with this place. Let's get out of town. Th- these are the uh, they're the reclusive. Uh, monastics. These these are um, predecessors to the monks. They're so disgusted with uh, with Greek, with the influence of Greek culture, with the permeation of of Greek things and Roman things, that they just want to get out of town. That they they think that the temple worship is corrupted, which it was, and so they they go and live in isolated little cloisters and settlements uh, on the fringes of society, and. Uh, what puts them on the map, as, as far as uh, church history and biblical scholarship, what puts them on the map is, the fa- is that in, was it 1946, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found um, uh, on the northern part of the Jordan River in the hills, and uh, they found uh, these, these manuscripts that had, uh, amongst many interesting things, uh, many Old Testament pro- uh, scriptures including the scroll of Isaiah, which I think at the time was dated to be 800 years or some ridiculously long amount of time older than any than, than the previously older oldest manuscript we had. So their contribution to church history is that they preserved some manuscripts that were really helpful for us. Okay. Judaism at large. Most of the Jews... Uh, many Jews lived outside of Judea and Palestine among the diaspora, uh, and they tended to live together. They, they tended to be uh, somewhat isolationists. Um, they didn't want to have anything to do with Gentiles. And some, some Jews allowed themselves to be uh, um, influenced by Greek culture and Greek thinking. But what was more common was for Gentiles to convert to Judaism in some sense. And these are called the God-fearers. Uh, the, the, most, the, the best example would be the centurion Cornelius in chapter 10. Now, they're not going to become full Jewish proselytes. They're, uh, the Roman world was quite disgusted with circumcision, so they didn't do that. They weren't allowed um, into the inner courts of the temple, but at least on some level, they became Jewish followers. And... Leading, um, leading as, as I hinted at earlier, because of the rise of the zealots, leading up to AD 70, Jewish and Roman relations are going to get progressively worse. But that's, that is basically the foundation that this is, what I tried to do this morning was give you the launch pad for the Jesus movement to shoot out from in following weeks. So I, I, hope, uh, I hope that was a, a good picture for you of what life looked like at the beginning of church history were there any any questions any any observations or all right thank you let's pray lord thank you for this morning uh thank you again for your faithfulness to your church Lord, i pray that you would help us to uh, to learn from this to learn from uh from the struggles of the saints who have come before us. 
Help us to be inspired, Lord, as we consider um, we consider how you appoint the right people at the right time in the right circumstances, and you you uh, you totally fulfill Romans eight twenty eight in in working out things for good, even even when the men and women in their respective circumstances didn't see it. We can look back and we can see how you work together for good all things. So I, I pray that this series would be a, a blessing to the church and to your saints, especially as they observe your faithfulness and goodness to your people. Amen.